This is DeRay, and welcome to Positive the People. On this episode, it's me, Kaya, Diara, as usual, talking about the news that you don't know from the last week, news that you should know, news about race, justice, and equity that just didn't make the headlines but impacted people's lives. And then I sit down with the one and only Samantha Tweedy, who leads the Black Economic Alliance Foundation, to talk about her work closing the racial wealth gap across the country and a new organization that is built to do just that. Here we go. My advice for this week is to make sure there's space for new people to enter your life. Honor the relationships you have, but also be open to meeting dope, incredible people and building with them. You know, I've been, I've traveled, you know, a little bit more than I traveled for the past two years more recently. And and I've met some amazing people like in passing. And I'm so thankful that there's still room in my life to meet new people because goodness, there's so many great people out there. So make room for new people to honor the relationships you have, keep them intact and make room for new people. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. Welcome back. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Kaya Henderson on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And I'm Dre at DIY on Twitter. So, my favorite month is coming up Black History Month. And I couldn't be more excited. Lord I love today. it. I love Black <laughs> History Month. You know, we can go on and on about the history of Black History Month and why we only have 28 days. But, you know, I just love to remind white people that it is Black History Month during <laughs> Black History Month. Black when History Month. When a client Month. sends me an invoice or when they going back and forth about our scope, I'm like, remember now, it's Black History Month. Just remember. <laughs> Just remember that. So it's just my way, you know, to get to get into a conversation about reparations. So I just love, love, love to use these 28 days to guilt and shame while celebrating all of the contributions past and present of brilliant, beautiful black people. That's what we're what do y'all say? (laughs) That's what we're focusing on. (laughs) Tiara, you kill me. <laughs> Listen, you step in front of me at the coffee shop. It's Black History Month now. <laughs> Tiara, get out. I love it. I love it. I might have to use that. Uh, we <laughs> we are focusing at my little company, which is all about Black history, Black culture. We, we've crossed out the month, and we're just calling it Black History because it is perpetual. But... It's all the time. It's all the time. Um, but we are focusing on things you wish you had learned in school. And we're trying to share facts and historical pieces um, that most people haven't heard about or haven't read about. Um, at a, Because at a time when schools and school boards across this nation are trying to deny us of true history, we feel like it's important to make sure that we are teaching our young people and our grown folks about what really happened. So uh, we will be focusing on little-known stories and facts about Black history that celebrate Black joy, Black resilience, Black love, Black ingenuity, Black excellence, Black entrepreneurship, all of the amazing things that we are. Come through February. And we are, um, Kai, I'm excited about that. I can't wait to, where, where can we go? Not to do a little ad in the middle, but where can people go to check that www. out? www.reconstruction.us. Get our Black History Month package. 
You can get 28 affirmations that are positive about Black people. You can take free classes. You can do all the things. But when does it launch? Uh, February 1st. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm I'm excited for that, and I'm hopeful that I can I'll learn new things because I feel like every day online I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. There's like a new thing. I'm we're interested in like black possibility during this month. Is like how do we help people just like dream about what you deserve and and think about tools. So we'll be doing a big volunteer push in in February to like because I think that there are a lot of people who know the world screwed up. They're like da 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 da, but they don't think they can do anything about it. They feel overwhelmed by it. And like, hopefully you're going to use the energy of Black History Month to get people revved up and like, okay, you can do that. You can like undo this jail thing. You can free people from this. You can da 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 Because um, I will say I'm a little exhausted by the same sort of programming. It's like, I can't go to another talk. I can't go to another thing where like, I heard it. They said it again. Like, it's not even interesting and new. I'm like, this isn't even, I'm not even walking away with like more tools than I came in here with. I'm just here because I got to be here, you know? And I'm hopeful that this Black History Month is a little different. Well, speaking of Black history, my news today is about Black women who stepped in during World War II. So you know how we typically see that image of like Rosie the Riveter, like the white woman that's like holding up, you know, doing a little, holding her arm up to show her little muscle. What we don't, what we don't know about that story and about that narrative um, about all the white women going in to help um, working in jobs, working in government during World War II, that there were 600,000 Black women that were also, I don't want to say Rosie the Riveter. I really want to say like Rashonda the Riveter. (laughs) Rhonda, 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 Rhonda the Riveter, the Riveter, okay? Yes. 600,000 of them. And what was so fascinating about this story, y'all, that's in the Washington Post, is that some of these women came from the Deep South and literally went to D.C. to, like, process payroll for soldiers. And so they went into all these jobs, they went into factories, and had to deal with discrimination because of race, discrimination because of gender, and their stories have not been told. And so there's a documentary out now called Invisible Warriors um, that was put together by a historian and writer, Gregory Cook. Um, And so they premiered this documentary at, um, I think, at the Martin Luther King Library in D.C., And a lot of the women came and were honored there and got to tell their stories and be in community just about what they went through at that time. And the story, you know, their children were there and these stories were were not really known until, I mean, not known to me until until today. Um, And how Black women really have been left out of the accounting of what happened in World War II And what was also interesting is not just what Black women did here in World War II, but also what they did to help liberate folks in the Netherlands in 1945. So even um, the the Dutch ambassador actually came to this screening um, to participate in this honoring and celebrating of these incredible women. Uh, One of the women who this documentary is about is Susan King, who now is 97 years old. And she came from her family's home in Lancaster County, Virginia. um, And she went to Baltimore, DeRay. 
Miss King discusses learning about this Baltimore plant that was training women to be riveters, and she enrolled in a class with a friend. Um, her pay was about $58 a week, um, and she worked throughout the war. She then went to college and later got her master's degree at Morgan State. And she has spent the last, you know, she spent 32 years as a teacher and a counselor in Baltimore. Another woman, Miss Ruth Wilson, who was 99, um, lives in Philadelphia, but remembers leaving her home in New Jersey to work in a shipyard. And she later went on to work for 30 years at a coat factory. Um, And she said that she thought the film was fantastic and that nobody had ever done that before that she had known of in terms of really bringing these stories to light. So check out the documentary, check out the stories of these women. I just was, you know, in in bringing Black History Month to life, I just thought that this, um, you know, again, speaks volumes about all of the contributions of Black people, of Black women, um, who were just starting to surface those stories really um, coming to light. One of the things that was interesting to me about this, first of all, thanks for bringing it to the pod, Diara. Um, you know, just had no idea that 600,000 Black women um, were out here supporting the wartime effort. Um, but I went on Wikipedia just to see what they had to say about Rosie the Riveter. Of course, there's not mention of Black women, but interestingly enough, the first picture that they show is of a Black woman um, putting rivets on a Volte A31 Vengeance in Nashville, Tennessee in 1943. And so somebody out here is trying to correct the, <laughs> the record to help people understand that Black women were part of this movement. It's not surprising when you sit back and think about work getting done <laughs> in large scale, um, there's always Black women who are engaged in those kinds of efforts. But I thought it was so interesting to imagine these young women leaving home and going clear across the country in many cases um, to work in factories and what they probably left behind. And, and you know, even looking at Susan King and, you know, how she made a life in Baltimore and went on to do other things. I mean, it is, I'm excited to see the documentary because I think um, it's going to be another one of those, you know, little known Black history facts. So this is totally appropriate. Thanks. I also had no clue that that 600,000 Black women, and and honestly, this is probably an undercount, right? This is probably uh, just somebody's approximation that, that underplays it. But so one of the things I thought was interesting is, is, you know, one of the one of the children of one of the women says, you know, my mom just came here to work. Didn't didn't ever think about being a Rosie, but also continues to to say like that that they didn't know at the time that what they were doing was critical to the wartime effort. That like that they they thought they were just coming to like help out. They didn't know that we would not have been successful without them. And that's one of the ways that racism works, right? Is like you become a cog in the wheel. But nobody ever tells you that, like, you are the cog that makes the entire thing work. You are the you are the mechanism by which the wheel actually turns. And they, I think that is true of Black women over over time. I think that is true about Black people over time and space. And this was just another way that, I, and you know, Kai talking about one of the hopes for Black History Month 
is that the more and more that people realize that without you, without the poorest people, without the darkest people, like the whole thing, literally, it just does not work. It does not move. It is not successful. It does not travel. Uh, the more and more that we tell those stories, I hope, and this is the organizer in me, we always say in organizing that we can't give people power, that the best we can do is help you realize that you have power. We can like help you unlock that power. We can help you believe in that power. And some of that is stories like this, helping people realize that like the only way that any of this works is because people who look like you and who thought like you and who made decisions like you were a part of it to power it in the first place. So shout out to... Shout out to the the film. I cannot wait to see it. Um, hopefully our producers can get a, get a copy of it and we can get them on the podcast. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. 
mine was, you know, I feel like I could say this every week, but I'm like, I'm never shocked anymore. And then I read some, I'm like, hmm, I'm actually shocked. <laughs> so this is this is in The Guardian. And it's about a study that says um, women are 32% more likely to die after operation by a male surgeon. And I'm like, well, golly gee, that is to the wild. It was the findings were published in JAMA, uh, the medical journal JAMA Surgery. And what they find is that women are 15% more liable to suffer a bad outcome and 32% more likely to die when a man rather than a woman carries out the surgery, according to a study of 1.3 million patients. And what it sort of what it said to me was both this is wild and I can only think about like the the way we need to train people better. You know, we talked about the racial implications of 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 the way doctors determine who who experiences pain at high levels and who don't. But this also made me think about, um, I was talking to another friend about clinical trials. Like one of our friends, okay, one of our mutual friends had like an adverse reaction to a medicine. And it was this conversation about like, who is going through these trials? Are women even in the trials? Like are, are black people even, are black women even in the trials for that? Like who, who are we centering in this, in the enterprise of medicine? And this really sort of was a helpful push around, you know, we spend a lot of time on racial disparities. We talk about gender disparities, but I hadn't thought about something as simple as gender as having such a profound impact on outcomes in surgery. Like I, I would have been like, oh, training too and da-da-da. But it's like, Lord, this is actually just um, this is actually just bad. And, you know, I'm interested to see what comes after this in terms of of solutions. You know, the article talks about unconscious bias and uh, and the way that essentially patriarchy impacts the medical care that women get. But to see these numbers was actually more shocking than I had anticipated. This made me think of so many different things. One, it took me back to one of my first articles for the podcast, which uh, was an article about the fact that Black women um, Black women have a higher chance of, of um, dying in childbirth when they don't have a Black uh, OBGYN. And these you know these this this rep, we think about it as representation in fields right we should have diverse doctors nurses whatever but i think this and 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 um, information like the previous article show that this is about more than representation this the representation actually has significant consequences on people's ability to live and thrive if the kind of doctor that you have actually impacts your outcomes, um, your possibility of of living. And so I think this was really sort of shocking. You know, as a Black woman, I try to select doctors who look like me and who come from a similar background because I just feel like bedside manner is going to be different and whatnot. But this actually underscores the case that I need to be looking for a lady doctor, lady surgeons. I think it causes us to I have a friend who is the dean of diversity, equity and inclusion at um, one of our nation's top medical schools. And you know, she's been pushing for us to train our doctors differently because you've seen all of this stuff about, you know, doctors not believing that Black people feel pain at the same rate as other folks. And I mean, I think this 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 sort of brings up the whole human capital chain, right? 
Who are we recruiting and what are the incentives to ensure that enough women and people of color are going into the medical field? How do we decrease barriers to entry like, you know, these student loans that these poor doctors come out with? How do we think about training and and inducting them into the profession? How do we make sure that people are uh, professionally developed as these things come to light, right? There's the whole continuum, right? How are we retaining our highest performing medical folks all at a time when, you know, the medical profession is under siege, given that we're dealing with a global pandemic. And so this, to me, raises, this is scary, scary stuff. Um, and it makes me not feel crazy for trying to find Black women doctors to support my healthcare journey. Kai, I think that's absolutely right. And the only thing I have to add is, if y'all... <laughs> The best way to see where your doctor is at politically is to go to fec.gov and to look up your doctor's political contributions. Because I was recommended a doctor um, at a very well-to-do gynecology practice in New York. And this man was head of the practice. I looked him up. And he had given all kinds of money to Donald Trump. So first of all, you don't need to be around any woman, let alone any woman's private parts. Okay. So all that to say, a lesson to y'all out there, again, look up these people's contributions and then decide from there whether you want to put your life in their hands. What did y'all feed this girl this morning? (laughs) DR is ready for Black History Month, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Continuing on the medical disparities theme, my news this week is about monoclonal antibodies and the disparities in uh, treatment for COVID. So as many of you already know, um, COVID hits communities of color disproportionately, um, in some cases more than double the rate of other groups in terms of hospitalizations and mortality rates. And we've been watching this play out across the country. Um, But uh, there was a recent report from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, that says that there are also inequities in how we treat people with COVID. Um, The analysis found that, and I'm just going to read this straight out the thing because there's no other way to say it, that people who are Hispanic face the most barriers in accessing treatment, early treatment to monoclonal monoclonal antibodies, which has shown, which has been shown to present ho- prevent hospitalizations and death, Hispanics uh, receive monoclonal antibodies fifty eight percent less often than their non Hispanic peers. Fifty eight percent patients who are Asian, as well as those who identify with the other category, including Native American, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and multiracial patients, receive monoclonal antibodies about forty eight. And, 50, and 47% less often uh, than white patients. And Black patients were treated with these protective proteins 22% less often. And, you know, this is just the same old stuff. Um, different day, different manifestation. Many of the reasons why uh, people of color are not getting access to monoclonal antibodies are because they have insufficient health insurance, of course, because as we just 
remember there's potential bias among medical professionals. There's a lack of primary care doctors in communities of color to recommend the treatments. There are language barriers. Um, And then sometimes we just don't know about them. So for example, in order for monoclonal antibodies to work best, you need to get them within the first 10 days of diagnosis. Our folks don't even know that. I didn't know that. And so I brought this to the pod because you know, we are out here dying um, from COVID when we don't have to be dying from COVID because there are treatments available. We just don't know about them. Our doctors are not telling us about them. Um, but the white folks are getting what they need, and that needs to be different. Um, there are some strategies that the article recommends, like mobile clinics that can bring monoclonal antibodies to patients. And telemedicine actually is incredibly effective because it makes it easier for uh, folks to see doctors. And so um, awareness is higher and access to treatments for high-risk patients becomes higher when telemedicine is in play. In fact, um, one study found that telemedicine visits helped increase attendance at follow-up doctor's appointments after hospitalization from 52 to 70% among Black patients. That means we have to make sure that our mamas and daddies, our grandmas, our aunties, our sisters and brothers and our cousins are going to the doctor, are following up on on things. I have one of my girlfriend's parents uh, both got COVID. They're both in their 70s. And her daddy told me that he was, um, you know, working out and taking his eucalyptus oil. Sir, I want you to do those things and I want you to go to the doctor and get you some monoclonal antibodies or whatever else you need. We got to take care of our people, folks. Um, What it was also interesting to know is there's a great resource um, that the National Infusion Center Association has. Um, They have these clinics and infusion sites where you can get these things. You can go to these, uh, go to the website, and you can enter your city, state, and zip code, and they will tell you where clinics and infusion sites are available, so that you can go get yourself some monoclonal antibodies and some of the other treatments that have been known to reduce the impact of COVID. So, I brought that to the pod because um, I want our people to be informed about the fact that. Um, we need to be accessing these treatments at a higher rate. I think what's interesting about this whole thing or just something that we really have to figure out is just kind of like the dissonance between vaccine hesitancy, people not wanting to go to the doctor, people distrusting the doctors, but then us being impacted the most by these things. Right. Like, I just don't know. Like how to get to solution, you know what I mean, when those are the two ends of the spectrum and the distrust thing is real. Like we cover, you know, inequity in health all the time on the pod and it's a real thing. Um, But it's also a real thing that. You know we have to get care. Like we have to access um, being healthy and treatment, et cetera. Um, But I just, I I guess what I'm searching for is like, how are we going to start to get to a solution in terms of, in terms of messaging, in terms of shift in narrative, shift in culture to help get communities of color there. 
And I have some cousins, like first cousins, close cousins, who still don't want to get vaccinated. And it's not really, you know, I don't, I don't, it's not an argument for me. It's not, I don't get upset with them because it's a real thing. And some of these people have been, some of my cousins who don't want to get the vaccine have been incarcerated. So I think there's also a play in terms of they just don't trust any white institutions. And that's real. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer, but I guess I'm just looking for like a framework to start thinking about this differently so that we can get to some solutions because our people don't trust the system, but then our people are, you know, less likely to access the system. And then once they're in the system, they get treated um, with not the best care. So I guess, I don't know, I, I'm talking in circles at this point, but I, I, I think all this to say is we have to figure out how to move the needle on each of these points so that we can start getting some better results and so that we can start seeing healthier, happier um, fo- folks in our communities. I mean, these are these are our, our family members. And so, um, yeah, just something I want to continue thinking about. Obviously, we'll continue to talk about, but just like how can we think about this thing differently? How can we approach it differently? And is it a matter of us taking care into our own hands, you know, mobilizing doctors of color, investing in more doctors of color? I don't know. So thanks, Kaya, for bringing this one, because I think it's another example of, you know, kind of this um, this very tough spot we're in that literally is, is meaning life and death for a lot of folks and a lot of folks of color at that. You know, this makes me think about how... Um, we need people need healthcare, universal healthcare, a given we believe in that, and that the that the presence of healthcare is not the same thing as access to healthcare. That those are two fundamentally different things. And I think about when my father got COVID, he calls me. He's like, you know, I'm not freaked out about it because I'd already had COVID, but he's like telling me like his arm is falling off, and I'm like, do you feel bad? He's like, no, did I? But I call some of my doctor friends and they're like, you know what, you know, he's in Rhode Island right now. You should look into if he can get the mono, you know, do we have a a black nickname for this yet? (laughs) Not (laughs) yet, but we could make one. (laughs) And I'm like, this is a long name. Can we get a, is there a... So, so my father, somebody was like, you know, DeRay, you should think about if your father can get the mono, the mono, mono treatment. And... It was one of those things where it was like, I'm super in the know. I don't know who to call. I don't even know how to tell my father that. Should he just ask for it when he walks in? Does he have to say that he feels this? Like, literally, how do you do this? Like, I don't even know how to navigate. Even when I got COVID the first time, I didn't know who to call or who to ask or how to get it. Do all the hospitals have it? Do only, you know, it's like a, that, that knowing how to navigate the system is, that's 70, 80% of the battle. Like health, having access to healthcare is, you know, the entry criteria, but knowing how to move once you get in is something that like, you know, I tell people all the time, my father, we didn't go to the hospital unless something was bleeding or our limb might fall off. Everything else was drink some water, take a nap, sweat it out, take some Tylenol. Like he Mm -hmm. didn't know. Yeah, he didn't, you know, either they didn't have access or they didn't know. So, so I think about that a lot with this is that the vaccine feels like a big lift. The mano mano feels like a people are like, I don't even know what that is. 
And now my conversation with the one and only Samantha Tweedy. I first met Samantha when she was the chief advancement officer at Uncommon Schools, but she has been a senior officer at Robin Hood Foundation. She started out as a lawyer and has been in a host of roles helping to move conversations about equity and justice and the work around equity and justice forward. And now she is leading the Black Economic Alliance Foundation. And she's here today to talk to us about that work. Here we go. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. It is an honor to be with you, Samantha Tweedy, the one and only Samantha Tweedy. It feels like we met... I don't know, 10,000 years ago because of, of COVID, but but it wasn't all that long ago. It was not, not too long ago. Uh, but let's start with the first question, which is, how did you get into this work? What was your entrance into this work? How did you find this work? Help us understand the how. So first, that is so real on the 30 years. Uh, second, the right, it is good to be with you today. Uh, so if you ask my mom that question, she would tell you osmosis which is what she has told people for years and years and years when they ask, how did she find herself, you know, in this racial justice and economic justice work? And really, you know, what she meant by that was that the work was in the water, you know, that it had been passed down to me, passed through into me. Uh, my granddad started fighting Jim Crow, you know, back in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, which I should say, because he always said, is the city where Abraham Lincoln practiced law but couldn't find it in their minds or hearts to ever give Black folks a fair shake. 
you know, he was he was there as a 20-year-old leading sit-ins to fight the discrimination at the local Walgreens drug store back in you know the 1940s, 20 years before you know the sit-ins of the civil rights movement that were so monumental. And decades later, he was a key organizer of Dr. King's historic visit to Philadelphia. So you know, from him to my grandma to my aunties, I just I come from this line of educators, lawyers, social workers, artists who have just been unrelenting uh, in the dedication of their talent, their voice, their work to further the liberation of Black folks. Let's start with um, with your work in education. You know, I, I met you because you were working in education, and I'd love to hear you talk about the transition from education to the work you did now to the work around wealth and uh, the work with the organization you lead. Like, what was that transition? Let's start there from education to now. How was that? So I've spent the last two decades working for racial justice, economic justice in education, schools, education nonprofits, philanthropic foundations, legal settings, advocacy orgs, you know, and my big takeaway and really what led me through this transition is that even in the places where people with the best intentions, the most brilliant ideas and the real commitment, right? The real commitment to justice, even in those places, when it comes to efforts to create true economic prosperity for Black folks, my takeaway is that we're still largely working under a false setup. So let me tell you what I mean. You know, where you and I first met is when I was in the education equity and access space. I worked on the team leading landmark school equity litigation to close public school spending gaps. I founded and led a school that went on to win a blue ribbon national award for closing social and economic racial achievement gaps. You know, I was the executive uncommon schools leading thousands of black and brown kids, you know, from most disadvantaged communities across the Northeast to go on to college uh, and wonderfully graduate at rates that outperform students from the wealthiest households across the country. But it was the data that I just couldn't shake that despite all of that, you know, what the data kept showing us was that still in this country, black college graduates earn less and have less wealth than your average white American who dropped out of high school. And so I went from that education space into the poverty space, you know, thinking about poverty fighting work as addressing the economic circumstances that had so often, you know, challenged our kids before they even made it into our classrooms and our schools, you know, working most recently at Robin Hood Foundation in New York City and really tackling the issues, you know, that are both the causes and consequences of poverty, cross education, housing, et cetera. Same thing, though. Data slapped me in the face. It's this setup that in so many of these racial injustice spaces, you know, we're still largely working under the, you know, false paradigm that this rising tide is going to lift all boats. That if we improve the circumstances so they're equal for everyone, that that's going to lead to real economic prosperity for the Black community. And it's just not true. The data shows us. And so that's really what has driven my transition to this focus on generational wealth building for Black folk, which is the laser focus of the Black Economic Alliance Foundation. 
So I'm going to ask, uh, you know, there are two questions, a couple questions sort of like running around in my mind at the same time. So you you sort of engage them the way, I don't know, the way they make sense to you. But but the first is, um, do you think this is a solvable problem? Like, do you think that we can solve it? And then the second is like, what does a win look like? Or what does winning look like? You know, because I think there are a lot of people who hear racial wealth gap today and they're like, okay, got it. They're like, yes, there's a gap. We got the charts. We understand it better than we've ever understood it. But like, don't either don't think that it's winnable or don't know that it's winnable, don't think it's solvable, don't know how to solve it. Like, what's your, yeah, what does that, I don't know, how do, what's your response to those two questions? And I should add this idea of like, you know, uh, can we do it in this lifetime, right? That like people feel like the problem was baked over a couple hundred years and, uh, and, and, and can't be unbaked so quickly? Or, or is that, do we believe that? Do we not believe that? Like, what's the, what's the what? Thinking about how we are going to close the racial wealth gap, you know, full stop after saying that is going to take sweeping, sweeping federal policy change. Also, and alongside that, in the same way that all of our sectors, corporate, philanthropic, social, that have contributed to the current economic infrastructure that we all find ourselves in, have been decisions that have been to hold hold back Black people, we have to be pushing for ways for those decisions to be equally intentional equally cross-cutting and equally impactful in both ensuring that this gap does not increase and in focusing on how we build that generational wealth. You know, when we're talking about generational wealth for Black folks, you know, we're talking about owning a home, being able to pass it on to our kids, right? We're talking about building a business that sustains our family and allows us to improve our community, right? I think what's so important in these conversations about wealth is the reminder that you know wealth is its yes simplest but also most fundamental definition you know is owning more than you owe and we have to be able to get to a place in this country where that is no longer the exception for black folks but but is the rule and what are some of the policies that y'all are pushing for at the black economic alliance or or or, or is it not policies that you're pushing for like what does that what does that work look like so, uh, so at the Black Economic Alliance Foundation, we're focused on actionable solutions that we are pushing forward through creating programs, programs that can serve as proof points for what works, through education advocacy around those solutions, and through really working across the corporate and private and public and social sectors to drive those forward. So. You know, just four months in here, our, one of our big policy pushes you know, over the last couple of months has been around the child tax credit. You know, and I share that, acknowledging that we have, at this point, a long road ahead of us for thinking about new ways uh, to make that a plausible reality for our community. How do people stay involved? Is there a place they can go to get more information? Is there a person they can follow? Like, uh, how do people stay up to date with what you're doing and what the Black Economic Alliance Foundation is doing? Absolutely. So we would love for folks to follow us uh, on social media. You can come to our website, 
foundation.blackeconomicalliance.org. Uh, and we are partnering with folks you know, across the spectrum in these areas. And so would love for folks to, to come and to get engaged. And are there two questions that we ask everybody? The first is, what do you say to people whose hope has been challenged in, mo- in moments like this? What do you say to people who are like, I did all the things. I tweeted, listened to the conversations. I read the book. I volunteered. And the world still hasn't changed in the way that I wanted to. What do you say to those people? I love that you asked this question because we have all been there. Uh, I have been there. And what I look to uh, is absolutely hearing from others in those moments what it is that keeps us going. So my grandfather would always say in this incredibly simple, but for me, incredibly powerful definition of freedom is that freedom means being able to do what I'm capable of doing without the restrictions of racism. That as freedom and the fact that we don't yet have that, you know, that my six-year-old daughter, Sophie, does not have that, that my three-year-old son, Evers, does not have that. You know, there's just no question of us being able to rest until we do. And so I think when we're in those moments of we called, we marched, we worked, we tried, you know, the question is less, you know, what is it? You know, can we do something more? And it really is this sharing of what it is you know, that keeps us going. So for me, it is, you know, my, my grandfather fought in World War II because he was passionate about this country, right? Understanding its flaws and yet wanting to fix it. He would carry with him, you know, into combat, the, the double V, right? Standing for the, the victories abroad and then the victories against racial justice in, at home. You know, he got wounded in Italy and went to the hospital and they were doing a, a blood drive. And he volunteered and they would not take his blood, not because he'd been wounded or, you know, because they were concerned about disease, because he was black. But here's what it was to me. When he would tell his story, among others, he would tell it in the context of these are the things that deepened my commitment. And so for all of us, looking at these moments, as the things that deepen our commitment, that, that's what keeps me going. And the second question is, what's a piece of advice that you got in the years that stuck with you? So I have a, a new uh, colleague, uh, who Gabrielle Wyatt, who's leading the Highland Project, which is this incredible project, uh, cultivating this pipeline of Black women just leading the way and dressing racial wealth gap, creating multi-generational wealth and change. And I am on the advisory of the Highland Project, and I was giving Gabriella, sending a text back, you know, with, which started with, you know, I'm so sorry that I am late on this because, you know, because we had kids at home with a COVID shutdown because, you know, new areas of work because, because, because. And her response to me, was this is a no apology thread. And it hit me so hard, and it's the new words of wisdom that I have been carrying with me, right, for how much we need this. And, and my we there you know, is, is women. My we there is Black women. My we there is Black mamas in this work. And, you know, I chuckle a little bit saying this because I am 
So as I'm saying this to you, I'm also in that work of, of teaching my two little ones <laughs> the importance of apologies and sincere apologies and what they mean. So this in no way means that, you know, all relationships should be uh, apology-free zones. So, but the idea that those you know, who are alongside us in this work, that you have the ability to create this understanding, this acknowledgement that you always are showing up in that work and bringing everything you bring to the table and creating these no apology thread. I, it just, it gave me wings. And so I have been actively working to pass those wings on to, uh, to as many others as I can. Well, Samantha, we consider you a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back and I uh, wish you all the best in the work that you do. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Positive the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. 